What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to, or watching as the case may be, Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things. We contemplate them. We turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me. But I kept the matter in my heart. Now, we're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. And today we're going to talk about this question that keeps on coming up. Did Jesus claim to be God and demand to be worshipped? I'm not going to deal so much with the second part of that question because, quite frankly, if it is the case that Jesus is God and Jesus was God while he was on earth and and the second member of the Godhead was pre-existent, and was, this is a $5 word, coetaneous with God the Father, then he is, by his very nature, worthy of worship. He does not have to demand worship, his, not, not with his voice. In other words, he doesn't have to issue an order or an edict. His very nature demands worship. Have you ever stood by the ocean and, oh, now I'm thinking of that song, Have you ever stood at the ocean? Anyway, have you ever stood at the ocean and you've seen those waves breaking? And the first time that I saw the ocean, I was an adult. And I was overcome with a sense of awe. And right there on the beach, I don't care how goofy I looked, I praised God Almighty. Folks, if the creation of God can do that, How much more so can God in the flesh? So I'm not going to deal with the second part. I don't care whether or not Jesus ever, quote-unquote, demanded worship. If he was God on earth, then he was worthy of worship, and he was to be worshipped. So anyway, um, hello, Robert Lady. It's good to see you. Reginald Perry, good to see you. And we've got, y'all, every time, I I don't know what I think. It's like, I think I'm going to go live and there's going to be nobody watching. Blows my mind. Uh, Because whenever I go live and then within just a few minutes, within within less than the first five minutes, we've got 14, 15 people in the live stream. Now, I'm just a little old bitty YouTuber. I'm a little old bitty Facebooker, so to speak. That's a huge crowd for me. And how many thousands of dollars would you say... Would would it? How many thousands of dollars would a would a congregation spend to send a man to a foreign nation or or across the country or whatever to preach the gospel to a group of fifteen or twenty people, folks? That's amazing. I'll tell you what. Little is much when God is in it, and I cannot thank y'all enough for the likes, the subscribes, the shares, the comments. When you comment and when you interact, especially if we have a very interesting, and not all of these are as interesting as the others, but if we have an, a, a, a particularly engaging topic for a live stream, y'all get to conversing with one another in the comment section. All that does is it boosts us in the algorithm. It's like paying Facebook or YouTube money, and they say, hey, let's go show this to a bunch of people. Anyway, thank you so much for that. Sorry, I'm I digress. Uh, Wayne Vaughn, good morning to you. Glad to see you're here. All right. Now, 
what do we need to do first? Well, first off, let's get into this. Um, here's here's one of the reasons why you're getting the um, getting the live stream for this topic. It, it's a needed topic, but uh, Aaron and I on Christianity Now podcast that airs on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Central, 11 Eastern, we had uh, the director of Apologetics Press, Eric Lyons, and we wanted him to talk a little bit about the work and, and talk about alleged Bible contradictions. And he talked about this idea that Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh or God on earth, and he offered some, you know, here's some real easy ways to combat that. And I, I took a cut of that and I uploaded it to YouTube in the form of what's known as a YouTube short, okay? That's a that's a 60-second or less clip. And the one of the comments that was on the video is this. All those books behind him can't verify a word he says. Now, this is very interesting because Eric Lyons was not expecting any of the books behind him to verify a single word that he said. We're talking about Bible contradictions, and we were talking about internal evidence from the Bible. Now, look, logically speaking, if I say that um, if if I say that the Bible is true, and you say that the Bible is not true, I can't go to the Bible and say, "Look, see here, the Bible says it's true," because Obviously, the Bible is going to say it's true. What do I have to do? Well, I have to look at, I can look at internal evidence, but I can't say, look, see 2 Timothy 2.15, all scriptures given by the inspiration of God, so that proves it. I have to say, look at this prophecy. Look at this scientific foreknowledge. Look at this historical accuracy that was so accurate down to the smallest detail long before archaeology ever validated what was in this book. We can look at manuscript evidence and how that uh, the, the Bible is the most attested ancient manuscript that we have, okay? So basically we make the case that if you put the Bible on the witness stand to testify of Jesus Christ, is the Bible a credible witness? That's not the topic of conversation. That's not the question here. If that were the case, if we were trying to figure out whether or not the Bible was a credible witness, then we would go to all those books in the background and we could see all of the scholarly work that has been done to look at the Bible and how the Bible is shaped or how the Bible has shaped the world scene. Okay? But that's not what this person was talking about. Eric Lyons was simply stating that in the scriptures, Jesus claimed to be God, deity. And that's what this person was referencing whenever he said all those books behind him can't verify what he said. Now, here's my response. This is very, very short. This is not going to be a long exchange at all. And then I'm going to get right into answering the question of whether or not God or Jesus, while he was on earth, claimed to be God. And this was 10 days ago. My response, it's a 35-second clip from an hour-and-a-half video. What exactly would you like verified? He said, exactly what you and every other Christian cannot prove. Jesus never said anywhere in your scriptures, I am God, worship me. 
when you rely on books with no verified authors and broken chains of transmission, you need to surround yourself with as many books as possible. So notice what he said. This man does not believe that the Bible is true. This man claims, this man believes, rather, the implication is this man believes that the Bible is not the inspired word of God. He says it's your scriptures. And this is what blows my mind is when people who do not believe that the Bible is true start using the Bible to try to disprove God's existence or to disprove the moral standard that comes from God. A plethora of different things. I'm like, if it's not true, why go to the Bible? I mean, just just leave it at that. If we're just following a fairy tale, if we're just following a book of wisdom, what do you care? I mean, seriously. When you rely on books with no verified authors, well, there are some books in the Bible that have no, or I guess I should say letters. Uh, the book of Hebrews has no verified author. It obviously has an author, but it doesn't matter that the author is not verified because we can show from Scripture, from, again, not that we're appealing to Scripture as an authority, but I can show from the writings that, and I can show from extra biblical manuscripts of people who were contemporary with early Christians that lived during the age of miracles that these people believed that the letter to the Hebrews that we call Hebrews, that it, it was represented as scripture and we have an accurate representation, at least to the second century, of what the original author wrote. So it doesn't matter if we don't have the author or the name of the author. If the name of the author was important, we would we would te- we would be told. And then no, with broken chains of transmission. Well, that's crazy. There's no broken chains of transmission. There's there's never a time in which these books came on the world scene and then was not on the world scene, and then came on the world scene again. Interestingly enough, did you know that you can do that with the Book of Mormon? You can do that with the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. You can take every copy out of the world, and you can recreate them because they were conceived in the mind of man. You can take, you can take the Quran. And you can recreate it because it was not conceived in the mind of man. What you cannot do is recreate the Bible. You cannot take it completely out of the world and then recreate it because it was not conceived in the mind of man. It was conceived in the mind of God. Anyway, again, this second time this podcast, I digress. So you need to surround yourself with as many books as possible. I didn't even address that. Here's my reply, and this gets into the meat of the podcast. John chapter 12, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world during a Jewish feast where the light represented Jehovah God. Now, the really sad thing is I said John 12. It is not John 12. It's John chapter 8, verse 12. I'm not inspired. I'm just wrong. Anyway. Um, but John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world during a Jewish feast where the light represented Jehovah God. Also, 
And this is a very interesting one indeed, my, my friends. Isaiah chapter 6, the second member of the Godhead appears in a vision to Isaiah, and the angels are calling him Jehovah. I think I say angles, A-N-G-L-E-S. I don't spell very well. Anyway, John later identifies the person in the vision Isaiah saw as the Christ, Jesus. And then I simply stated, we don't need those books, just the Bible. Now, here's the thing. Here is what's going on, David. So here's the thing. Notice where he goes back to. Well, the Bible is inaccurate and not the word of God. It's the word of Paul. Also relying on a dream isn't proof of anything. Actually, well, actually, I'm not affirming whether or not the Bible is the word of God. I'm simply showing that your proposition that our scriptures never state that Jesus is God is false. It's not true because our scriptures record in John 8, verse 12, during the Feast of Tabernacles, that Jesus, the Christ, stands up and says, I am the light of the world. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they had these little oil lamps, and they would burn these oil lamps to remind them of the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them for 40 years in the wilderness. They knew what the light was. There's not a man, woman, or child that was present on the day where Jesus said that that didn't know exactly what he meant. But if that's not enough for you, then you have a vision of Isaiah that's not just a simple dream. It is a vision, a prophetic vision. And how do we know it's a prophetic vision if we're just using the rules of hermeneutics and we're saying, well, the Bible is not inspired by God, but what is the Bible teaching? Then Isaiah chapter 6, whenever John in John chapter 12 references Isaiah chapter 6, he identifies this as more than a vision or more than just a dream. And he says, Jesus, or Isaiah saw this person, the entity, the being in the flesh whom the angels who were flying around called Jehovah. True, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's it. That, that verse right there proves that the second member of the Godhead was coetaneous with God the Father. That verse right there proves there has to be two entities, both, that share the attribute of deity. Without, I mean, it's just absurd if it doesn't. So, again, I'm... In, in, in this exchange, I don't care whether, again, don't, don't read, read into this more than what I'm saying. In this exchange, my priority is not to convince this man that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
I don't you're not I don't think I could convince him he's so vitriolic and closed minded. There were several uh, comments that I had to delete because of the the filth. Uh, I think people sometimes just try to see if they can get a rise out of Christians. But anyway, uh, I think it's very interesting that once I lay out this logical argument that shows very well that, quote unquote, our scriptures do claim that Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, he says, well, the Bible is inaccurate. Well, so what? I never said it was accurate. I just said it claims that Jesus is God. And it's funny. It's the word of Paul. I'm not going to do it because I think it would be uh, futile. But I'm like, you think the book of John was written by Paul? Like, even if you don't think the Bible is true, even if you think the Bible is just a book compiled by men, do you, you you think you think Paul wrote the book of John? All right, that's interesting. My response is simple: How do you know the Bible is not accurate? Also, no one is relying on a dream. Who said they were relying on a dream? I've got to fix a typo here. This is terrible. I got to quit responding on my cell phone when I can't see. All right. So that's that's the gist of it all. Folks, don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God, all right? Here's another comment. This we're not this 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 is not germane to our conversation, but listen to this. It is a lie that Jesus is the only Son of God. Now, this is a this is a microcosm of how ignorant people are that don't actually study the Bible. I'm like, if you're not a Christian, why are you trying to take my scriptures and speak as you're an authority on the scriptures, on, on my scriptures? Now, when I say my, I'm not talking about Tony. I'm talking about you know us two. You're 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 an atheist. And you're trying to speak as an authority on scripture as if you're a Christian. You're, you're not, it's just dumb. It is a lie that Jesus is the only son of God. Psalm 2, 7, David is the begotten son of God. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. For as many are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons, plural, of God. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 1 John 3.1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And like this dude, like, so what, you got me? Here's my reply. No one who knows anything has ever said Jesus was the only son of God. That being said, Jesus is God's only begotten son. And then I give Psalm 2-7 is speaking of Jesus, not David. Hebrews 5-5, five, five, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said unto him, Thou art my son, today 
I have begotten thee. Jesus is the only begotten son of God who is also God in the flesh. Anyway, so let's talk about this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, I think this is very interesting. So the, the, the meaning and the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was celebrated as a remembrance of the period when the Israelites lived in temporary shelters during their 40 years in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. It symbolizes God's provision and protection. It's also known as, and I'm not going to pronounce this very well, S-U-K-K-O-T, Sukkot or Sukkot or the Feast of Booths, Tents. So the, the biblical institution, when was it, in, when, when, when was it in, instituted? Leviticus 23, 33 through 43. We're not going to read that. It was commanded as a lasting ordinance, just like everything in the Mosaic Covenant uh, in their generation. So once the generations of the Jews passed away, then no more Feast of Tabernacles. It's celebrated by the Israelites during their settlement of Canaan. And it was supposed to be observed annually as part of the three major pilgrimage feast. And it was neglected for a long time. And we'll get into that. Um, in fact, what does begotten mean? Uh, it means, so now this is going to be weird. You and I, if you're a Christian and you've obeyed the gospel, You've been reborn, been laid down in the watery grave of baptism and raised again to walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6. We are spiritual, adopted sons or daughters of God. Well, Jesus, he was just born a son of God. He was not adopted. Now, typically, all right, well, let me let me pull out my trusty, rusty Esau, and I'll, I'll pull you here um i'll pull you i don't know why i said pull i'll show you here i'll pull the the from john three sixteen the word begotten and uh i'll give you the strongs or or joseph a thayer's definition monogonase uh one who is born uh, it's a, a signal of its kind only. It's used of uh, sons or daughters uh, viewed in relation to their parents. It denotes the only begotten. So the, the genes, incidentally, is uh, uh, genomai, and it's came, made, done, come. Uh, let me go down here. To come into existence, to begin to, to be, to receive a thing. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to see something. Elamite. Uh, interesting. All right. Uh, I was wondering if the etymology of our modern-day word gene like genetics comes from um, genomai. And it looks like, I, don't know, I, I can't, come on. Well, where's it at? 
Nope, you know what? It does. Yeah. Yeah, the our 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 modern day word gene, like genetics, comes from genomai or monogenase that's only begotten. Mono is only. So if you adopt a person, if you adopt a child, he is not your, you did not begot him. You did not birth him from your loins. If you're a male and you adopt a child, he is not of your seed. Okay. In other words, you did not begot him. He does not share your genetics. He is not of your quote unquote kind, genetically speaking. He, he is of your kind as in a human being. But the, uh, if you come into your wife and she is with child and she birthed your child, then that is your begotten child. Incidentally, um, Abraham had two begotten sons. And this is, some people actually point to this. It's a very weak uh, example, but some people point to this as the um, as a Bible contradiction. Hold on just, oh, right there. Hold on. Where is it at? I lost it. 17, yeah. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. After he, after he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. And people say, well, look, um, Isaac was not Abraham's only begotten son. Why? Because he had Ishmael. He was begotten from Abraham's loins. Yeah, well, there's an ellipsis here. And even without the ellipsis, begotten son of promise, verse 18 explains it. Of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So there it gives you the definition. There are two begotten sons of Abraham, but Abraham had only one begotten son of promise. And this is a type of Christ because Christ Whenever he was born, he was a begotten son, but he was also a son of promise. All right. Uh, Abraham had eight begot. <laughs> Thank- yes. I've had eight begotten sons, one by Sarah and one by Hagar and six by Keturah. I was appreciate that. Anyway, uh, it was an oversight on my part. I-, I meant only in the realm of for this conversation, but yeah, he had two, at the time, two begotten sons, Ishmael and Isaac, um, whenever he offered up, he only had two when he offered up Isaac. In other words, Ishmael was born and he had Isaac, so he only had two at the time of the offering up of Isaac. Um, Wayne Vaughn, would it be born after due time? Uh, That's not what begotten means. Um born after due time i don't know what one word you would you would use to communicate that but uh begotten means genetic offspring now that's again that's why that's why i said up front to angela it's kind of a weird explanation because there's god has no genetics like i would of all the weird things to be weirdly curious about i would love to do a dna test on jesus like God had to miraculously put 
Y chromosomes. Yeah, God had to miraculously put the Y chromosome into Mary. Because males are XY, females are XX. That's why the male decides the gender. Whenever the sperm meets the egg, do we have a, a deliverance of the X chromosome or deliverance of the Y chromosome? If we have a deliverance of the Y chromosome, the Y chromosome bonds with the female's X chromosome, and now you have a male. But if you have an X chromosome delivered by the male, then it bonds with the X chromosome delivered by the female, and you have a female. That's why there are only two genders. It's, in, it's an impossibility to have more than two genders unless you have an XYY or an XXY, and then you're like 0.00001% of the population that's intersex that have a, and there's an actual name for that. Anyway. Oh, you're welcome, Wayne Vaughn. All right. Let me get the, um, let me get the overlay off where we don't lose the chat. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to talking about the, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. So it was instituted in Leviticus 23. We know what it was for, and it was neglected for a long time. In fact, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll see how long of a time for which it was neglected. For which it, well, that don't sound right. I'm trying to not end a sentence with a preposition and royally messed it up. We're going to see how long it was neglected for. Verse 17, actually, let's start reading in verse 16 of Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, remember what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8. They got together. They read distinctly from the book of the law and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Well, lo and behold, whenever you cause people to understand what the Bible says, they start drawing some conclusions. Maybe I need to do some changing. And then, lo and behold, here it is. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of, the, of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths, that's tents, and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto this day, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly. Folks, this was a feast, I believe. Now remember, a literary device is kind of like Chekhov's gun. If you're looking at the Bible as a complete unit and you are, uh, you're reading this and you get to Nehemiah and you read, oh man, since the days of Joshua, they hadn't practiced the, 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 the feast of tabernacles. And now they, they've started the feast of tabernacles and this is like a big deal. Well, that's a Chekhov's gun. So Chekhov's gun, the idea is, in a screenplay or in a novel, if the director or author or the attention of the audience, or if the director or author draws your attention or puts a gun over the mantle, 
by the end of the final act, that gun will be used. And that's called Chekhov's gun, if I'm understanding it correctly. Well, this, in, in my opinion, Nehemiah chapter 8 here is a, is a sort of Chekhov's gun. It's going to come back with much more importance later. Because right now, this is just one of many things that the Israelites they need to repent of. Why is, there, why is there actual screen time given to this one detail? Well, you could say, well, because it's one of the big three feasts. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But they didn't say that about the other two feasts. Why was this one singled out and, and given screen time? I believe because by the end of the, of the final act, it's going to come into play. And it did come into play. When did it come into play? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to John chapter 8 and let's read it. And, and I mean, we ain't got to read it. Everybody in the world can quote it. It's a simple verse to quote. On the next day, no, that's 12. Sorry, I need eight. <laughs> then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but he shall have the light of life. What does the light represent, all you folks sitting around a campfire? Well, it represents God the Father. I'm the light of the world. You think God the Father is the light of the world, but we're, we're, we're in the process of a change. I am the light of the world. I put forth to you there's not a man, woman, and child present whenever Jesus stood up and said that, they wouldn't understand what he was saying. Now, how do I know that they would not have understood, that they, would, they wouldn't have misunderstood what he was saying? Did I say understand at first? I think I misspoke. All right. There's not a man, woman, or child present in the hearing of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, that would not have known what he was talking about. Now, they may not have liked it, and this segues to my next point. How do we know that they understood what Jesus was saying? How do we know that they understood that this was Jesus claiming to be God Almighty in the flesh? They killed him. That's how. That's how you know. Folks, if Jesus was just claiming to be a prophet, they wouldn't have killed him. Their problem is he was claiming to be God. How do we know? Now, I can't remember the verse, but it's um, John chapter 5. Is it in the 30s? Hold on a second. The Jews sought all the more to kill him, not only because he healed on the Sabbath, but because he claimed to be the Son of God making himself equal with God. Where is that verse? I'm trying to read this on the fly, and it just looks like a big wall of text. All right. Let me cheat. I'm going to cheat. Verse 18. I didn't go far enough. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Folks, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. 
Now, I want you to picture something. Don't be too hard on the Jews. And I know that's difficult. And, and you got to be careful how you say that with the political environment going on. What I mean is don't judge the, the Jewish people harshly for missing Jesus, for missing the Messiah, okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. Why were the Israelites hauled off into captivity? Well, they did not practice their Sabbaths, their 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 um, seven year their their Sabbath after the seven year. They had like four hundred ninety Sabbath cycles. That's that's where you get seventy years. Okay, go read Jeremiah. But it was also for idolatry. Like these people were taken to the woodshed because of idolatry. And I've read some higher textual critics and scholars that say this isn't true. I believe with my heart it's true. I'm convicted it's true, and I've got good scholarly sources for it. That there was a valley in the south of Jerusalem, hey, hey, Alabama, that is such a a very useful understanding to have. Hey, hey, Alabama says we wouldn't have been any different. Listen, if if you can read, and I'm not saying you, hey, hey, Alabama, I'm saying if you, me and you, if we can read the crucifixion account, and if we can associate or identify ourselves in the people in the crowd screaming for Barabbas and saying, crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, then we've got a whole lot of, of, of the problems that are going to arise with our faith. We've got them licked. I mean, three-fourths of the battle is knowing that you need a Savior. Three-fourths of the battle is knowing you need a Savior. Three-fourths of the battle in staying good is knowing you can be bad. So that's a, that's, there's a lot of utility in that statement. Um. Now, where was I at? Feast of Tabernacles. They knew exactly what he was teaching, what he was saying. They sought all the more to kill him. They had been taken to the woodshed because of idolatry. And from my studies, there's a valley to the south of Jerusalem called the Hinnon Valley that before was called the Valley of Idols. So, so ashamed were they that they had this valley of idols that they started using that southern valley as a garbage dump and the flames forever burned. And it became, at least Jesus used it, as a metaphor for hell, for eternal damnation and destruction away from God. In other words, if there's ever a place on earth that you could use to help people understand what absence of God is, it's the flames of Gehenna. But in the flames of the Hinnon Valley, they will eventually die out and you'll get some reprieve. 
But if you if you don't die in faith and you die damned, then you're going to be going into a place where the fire is everlasting and the worm dieth not. So this is how they felt about idolatry. So whenever Jesus came on the scene teaching who he was, that he was God in the flesh and that he was worthy of worship, can you blame them for missing it some? I mean, can you can you be like, hey, listen, man, I, I get it. In fact, that's why he, that's why Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. Like, no, 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 you're not. You're telling me that you're God. No, nah, we've done it. We've been in that row before. We were hauled off into captivity for seventy years. We're not going to mess with this. We've we've been there, done that, and got got a skate, got a t shirt, and some scars. Claiming you're the son of God. Don't you know that makes you equal with God, dummy? You can't be God. There's only one God. Now you're saying you're God and there's two gods? We were hauled off into captivity because we thought there was more than one God. Maybe let's put ourselves in their shoes and let's not condemn them too harshly because as Hey Hey Alabama said, we wouldn't have been any different. Statistically speaking, maybe some of you would have been different. I mean... There was a very small amount that was, but statistically, I'd have been there, crucify him. Maybe I'd have been like Paul. You know, who knows? We say if we had seen Jesus and this and that, we wouldn't have done that. We would have. Human nature. You got that right. You got that right. All right. Now, let's see. Where am I at? Oh, let's do the one in Isaiah, okay? First off, let me go back to my notes here and make sure. I've always thought Jesus relating Gehenna to hell as an example of Jesus' brilliance of speech. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, if, if, ever, there's, if ever there's a place on earth that is a good illustration of the absence of God, it would be the flames of Hanon Valley. It surely would. Um, all right. Yeah, that, that's all I've got. That's all I've got on the, on the Feast of Tabernacles. But I don't understand how you can get by the Feast of Tabernacles. But if that's not enough for you, because there, there, that is implication. That's implicit. Now, I think it's necessary inference, but it is inference based on the implication of the text. So what about Isaiah chapter 6? Well, let's go read Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to, not a lengthy reading, but not necessarily a real short one either. All right, listen to it now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved, and the voice of him that cried in the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, and perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be washed without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, and, or excuse me, I can't see, as a teal tree, and as an oak, uh, when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. All right. They had him. We have the Bible. And it's still hard to get people to understand. You got that right. They had him. We have the Bible. You know, that, that that's that's a funny way to look at it. Funny is not the right word. That's a very interesting way of looking at that. We have the word with us. You know, Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all way, even to the end of the age. Now, there's a specific context. But there's a sense, generally, in which Jesus is with us today. How is he with us? He's with us through the medium of his word. We have the word that's written down. They had the word that was in the flesh. And that's right. Still hard to get people to understand. One of my classmates, when I was going through school, he opined, I wish we were able to do miracles today. We could lead so many more people to Christ. I'm like, have you read the New Testament? Jesus was able to do miracles. The 70 that he sent out was able to do miracles. They still killed him. I mean, I think, now, I'm stepping into the realm of conjecture here, so don't repeat anything I'm about to say within the next 30 seconds for the truth. I think of all the apostles, only one did not die a very horrible death of a martyr, and that's John. So, I mean, I don't think miracles are the key. I don't think miracles are the 
the the ace in the hole that some people think they are. I think maybe we stick to God's plan and we teach people. And once they're converted, they'll be in the kingdom and they no longer have to be taught who God is. They'll just, we help them, we help teach them how to live. It's almost like it's a prophecy written somewhere. But all right, why did I take the time to read Isaiah chapter 6? I want to... I want to reiterate, I want to iterate something here. Whenever you go in the King James and you see Isaiah chapter six, were you any, anywhere in the Old Testament and this word is written capital L and then a smaller font capital O capital R capital D. That is the tetragrammaton. That's Yahweh. All right. Jehovah. In fact, I think the American Standard 1901 may translate it as Jehovah. You said we need to first understand we need a Savior. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that goes back to Hey Hey Alabama's comment. We wouldn't have been any different. There's so much utility in that realization that if we read the Gospels, if we read there in Luke where they're saying, where Pilate is like, hey, you... I'm going to let Barabbas go. You want Barabbas or Jesus? Now, you know how bad Barabbas is. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they're chanting, crucify him. Statistically, we'd be in that crowd. We need to first understand we need a Savior. Without that realization, and you'll never have that realization without the realization that we'd be the people in the crowd. All right. Let's go to John chapter 12 and notice something that John says about this very scene. Now, this is explicit. Remember, the image that Isaiah saw was of Jehovah, according to the Scripture. And again, I think the American Standard 1901 even translates it that way. I'm looking for verse 41. Actually, I'm going to read back. All right. But though, this is verse 37 of John chapter 12. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. You still think that the miracles are all powerful in getting people to believe? Now, why didn't they believe him? Well, the saying of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah saith again, and here is chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, listen to it, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Well, who is the him? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, the him would be the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah. In the context of John, we're speaking about Jesus. Our scriptures identify Jesus as Jehovah God. 
Jehovah is a title. Jesus is worthy of the title Jehovah. Why? I think it was Wayne Vaughn that put the scripture in the chat. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. The word was with God and the word was God, rather. The same was in the beginning with God. You know, there wasn't anything that was made that was made without the word. And you skip down to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy. Or full of grace and truth. Tony, you better brush up on your reading, big boy. I think it's grace and truth now that I think about it again. Hope y'all don't hold it against me. Yep, it's grace and truth. Hope y'all don't hold it against me that I misquote a verse from time to time. Um, but yeah, I don't know, folks. Uh, for any of you listening, I mean, is there any questions about Jesus's, um, about Jesus's sonship? about his status, about while he was on earth, did people, did, did he set himself forth to be God in the flesh or not? Does the scriptures, now that they've been compiled, forget for a moment whether or not they're inspired by God. Let's say a bunch of men wrote them. Do the scriptures teach that Jesus was God in the flesh? I mean, I think you'd have to at least admit that you might think every word of this is not true, that it's a farce, that it's silly. I don't. I think every word of it is true. But let's say that you believe it's a it's false and silly. It's just a bunch of lies. You have to admit that according to the rules of interpretation, this book teaches, asserts, claims that Jesus is God in the flesh. You can't walk away from any other conclusion. And I don't know, what do you think? What, what are some of the things that you've heard before? Do you have any questions that this has brought up? Do you have any questions that's been plaguing you about this that you've been maybe afraid to answer in another in, in another venue, you know, or ask in another venue? Thank you very much, Scott Beck. Appreciate that. Let me tell you something, boy. That's a that's a, you can't look. You can. I've preached good sermons before. And I've had people come tell me, oh, Tony, that was a wonderful sermon. You sounded so good. Uh, you just had eloquent. I'm like, appreciate it. Thank you. Don't get me wrong. I'm appreciative of those. But the compliments, the encouragement that really gets me going is like that right there. There's a lot of education packed into this. I heard, I, let, let me tell you, I will. There, there's been two things in my life that I'll live on. I'll probably live on for the rest of my life. One is whenever I preached a devotional and I exegeted Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, I believe it is. I've slept since then, so let me make sure. I'm killing time, so in case anybody's listening and got any questions or anything about the topic, they can put it in a live stream chat, just, just, just so you know. Um. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I exegeted a section of scripture, including that passage, and um, t 
two men talked about me and they didn't realize that I could hear them, I don't think. And one of them said, boy, he really did a good job. I don't think, he said, I, I think we need to fail him and just make him stay around another year for us, jokingly. And um, then it was Brother Garland Elkins replied and said, yes, undoubtedly. I tell you what, he shucked that verse down to the cob, I believe. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's amazing. And um, the other time is whenever, um, an, again, another old man was talking about me, and, and I know for a fact they couldn't, they didn't know I could hear him. And the old man said, well, let me tell you the thing about Tony. You've got to listen closely, but he'll teach you more in 10 or 15 minutes and other folks teach you in two or three hours. It's heavy, in other words, but that's the kind of things that I live for. I love it. Not that I want the accolades of man, but I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm a Bible teacher. First Timothy 4.16, I'm supposed to take heed into myself and take heed of the doctrine. And as long as I continue in the doctrine and I continue to take heed to the doctrine and I'm teaching, I'll save myself and I'll save those that hear me. So anyway, uh, in the beginning, God from Genesis makes me believe Jesus is God. And John 1, the word became flesh. Interesting that you brought that up. Yes, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God brooded upon the water. Then God said, let there be light. Now within those verses that I just read, you have God the Father, God, well, here's the problem. It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're not identified in that way yet. Th think about this. I'm married. My wife is two years younger than me. But let's say that in my wallet I have a picture of her from when she's a little girl. I don't know why I would have a picture of her from when she's a little girl, but let's say that I did. And I would say, look, this, this is a picture of my wife. And you'd be like, well, Tony, that's a little girl. I went, well, yeah, but she's not my wife in the picture. It's a picture of my wife when she was a little girl. Okay. Jesus didn't start, the second member of the Godhead didn't how, how to there was no identity of Jesus Christ before he was born of a virgin under the law but the second member of the godhead was coeval coetaneous look those words up that means of the same origin in uh in the beginning all right so in the beginning God, now, this would be God the will. So there's the will. There is the communicative aspect of deity. And then there is the 
power of deity. So if your deity is all will, there's no power there. He can't communicate. If your deity is all communication, then there's nothing of substance of your deity. In order to, this is why God is supreme. This is why ontologically, uh, Jehovah God is a supreme being. Um, the word is the power section of God. Okay. This is the divine logos, the divine logic, the reason, the order. Now I know first Corinthians 14 says for God is not the author of order of, of chaos, but of order. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. Another way to think of that is God's not the author of, of chaos, but of order. Now think about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was chaotic. There was no order. There was no rhyme or reason to anything. Well, wait a second, Tony. God doesn't create chaos. Well, then you've got to explain the first few verses of Genesis. The creation was chaotic. There was no form. It was void. There was just darkness upon the face of the deep. There was, there was no form to it. It was just a bunch of chaotic mess. Now, what happens, let's say you've got an auditorium with 500 people, and they're all milling around and talking and stuff like that. How is it that the person in charge orders all of that chaos. Well, he stands up in front of everybody and he says, everyone be seated. It is time to begin. And then everybody will stop talking and sit down, find their seats and they'll, they'll order themselves. Well, that's the power of logos logic, the true words. So there was this big ball of chaos Everything in creation was in the mind of God. It was in his will, and it manifests, but it was chaos. And so God had to say, which is the spirit communicated the word, and it had an existential effect, a physical effect from the spiritual region, from the spiritual realm. Now, if you'll think about it, that's the way human beings operate. We have a will. That's our mind, our soul, our psyche. How do you know what's in my mind? My spirit communicates words that are commensurate with my will. So if I'm in charge of you, okay, let's do this. It is my will that that thermos rises off the table and tips over and pours coffee down my gullet. It's not working. My will has no power to make this happen. So I have to affect that in some way. Now, if I'm God, if I'm deity, I can say, Thermos, rise, come to me, tilt and pour coffee down my mouth because that's how powerful God's word is. It, it can, it, from, from a metaphysical position, it can affect the physical realm. However, 
I'm not God. So what do I have to do? I have to take my hand and I have to wrap it around this cup and I have to tip it. And then I enjoy my coffee. I had to, I had to affect it, but I had to affect it directly. Now you know how God works in the world today. How does, how does Jesus affect the world through the church? He, he takes his body, his, 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 his head guides his body to affect the world. Human beings are triune beings, just like God is a triune being. You have a soul, a spirit, and a body. Now, if you want a good illustration about how true words are powerful, that's logos, logical reasoning, reasoning is power, then I use this illustration. So if it's if 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 the five hundred people are just all chaotic, there's a den of chaos in the room, and we say, and I stand, let's say I'm in charge. That's right. Even Tony has no control over the Tim Hortons. It would no matter how actually I have control over the Tim Hortons, but the Tim Hortons is bound for a thousand years by a chain with a thousand links in this cup. Anyway, I, I think I'm done with that. I've, I've lost my imagination. I can't continue any further, but there's 500 people. They're all chaotic. It's 1055. So I'm in charge. Why am I in charge? Because I've been elected that week to do announcements. I stand up in the pulpit and I say, excuse me, everybody. We have five minutes before we begin. Could you please find your seats? And we're going to have our announcements now. Everybody finds their seats and sit down. They organize themselves. How did I, I, by the power of my word, I took that den of chaos, that cacophony of voices, and I organized it into a cohesive unit. Now, whenever I do that, let's say it's 1040. If I get up there and I say, hey, it's it's five, it's five minutes till, it's time to start, and we're going to do announcements, could you find your seat? I'm going to have a hard time because those words are not true. Now, this might be a hard illustration. Let's do another way. 500 people. I stand before the uh, congregation and I say, hey, look, there's a bear coming down the hall behind me and it's about to burst through the door. We need to all exit out the other door so we don't get eaten by this bear. And then you get laughter. You see, that word wasn't very powerful. Why? No bear. But let me tell you how my words could take on a whole new meaning. And by the power of my word only, I can totally clear a 500-member auditorium. Excuse me, folks. There's a bear coming down the hall, and it's going to come in and eat us. We need to exit the building on that room uh, and through that door over there. And then after I say that, you hear... And you hear a bear busting through the door. Now my words have taken on a whole new level of power. Why? Because they're true. 
the words that God speaks is true. The word, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. The divine logos, Jesus, is truth. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Everything to make the light was already existential. It just was organized from the den of chaos that was already there. That's the triune nature of God. Now, we went down that for a reason. In the beginning, God from Genesis makes me believe Jesus is God in John 1. The Word became flesh. Well, that's how those two verses tie in with one another. The will of God was communicated by the Spirit and the Spirit communicated words commensurate with the will. And that's how creation worked. That's the illustration. That's the illustration that we're given in Scripture. Absolutely. All right. Well, folks, I hope the last 10 minutes here hasn't been too abstract. I love talking about how we're made in the image of God. Incidentally, if you're wondering in Scripture where this, where I get this idea of we are a psyche, a mind, a soul, a body, and a spirit, it's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you, W-H, holy. So all of you, Every bit of you. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Tony, is it advisable to fulfill someone's dying wish to be buried at a particular place, even if it's difficult to do so? Many people say you have to honor their wishes. If you've made a vow to honor that wish, and you better do it, or you'll receive condemnation. Um, if you, um, if they, I mean, probably just out of love for that individual. Like, I mean, if they, if, if, like, I ain't gonna lie to you. If my mama died in my arms and she said, spread my ashes on Mount Everest. I'd be like, look, you kind of know. I'm not spreading your ashes on Mount Everest. Yes, I can. Um, but hold on, let me get this, Terry Crooks. Um, so is it advisable to fulfill someone's dying wish to be buried at a particular place? I, I think that if someone has a dying wish, we ought to do everything we can to fulfill it. That has no bearing on their eternity. That has no bearing on our eternity. It's just the decent thing to do. Like if if my my daddy died, like I'm trying to think, my daddy didn't really have anything like this. I I've sold them I, because I've I've since moved on from. But I back in uh, 1995. I put a really nice pair of Lou Casey ostrich skin boots with goat skin uppers, uppers with ostrich skin inlays. I put it on layaway. 1995, I paid $800 for a 
for this pair of Lucchese boots. And I wore them, resold after resold. I mean, I love these boots. I'm like, man, I'm gonna when I die, I'm gonna be buried with these boots. All right, something like that. Honor their wish. You know, don't don't like if if you if your if your spouse dies and they hey look, be sure to bury me with my 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 watch that I love. Honor their wish. You know, please don't bury me in Arkansas where we've lived the last 10 years. Bury me where I grew up back in Tennessee. Honor that. But it has absolutely no bearing on your future. It has no bearing on eternity. And from what I study the scriptures, if you don't honor that wish, they'll never know. You'll know. And if you can live with that, so be it. But if they ask you to spread their ashes on Mount Everest or something like that, man. I don't know. Maybe you can hire a team to do it if you feel that strongly about it, but I just hope nobody ever dies in my arms they ask me to do something like that because I hate to tell them, like, I'm not going to Mount Everest. Terry Crooks, I don't know if that answers your questions or not, but that's just the ramblings of a, of a crazy man, I guess. All right. Lord versus Lord. Uh, let me let me go to let me pull out my trusty rusty e sword for this. Um, what am I doing here? Yeah, Isaiah six. First off, let's get, let's get this established. I want to. Oh, where would I put Isaiah? I can find it better in the Bible. Right there it is, Isaiah six. All right, the seraphim, one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Jehovah. It equals the existing one. And um, good deal, Terry Crooks. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad I did. I, I, I've, sadly, it's probably not a definitive answer, but at least you may have some more information now than you did. Um so this is found in the King James 6,528 times, Scott, according to my trusty, rusty e-sword. Um, and it's the self-existent or eternal Jehovah. It's the Jewish national name of God. And you can compare it to H3050, which is Yah. And, but that's that's not that's not the capital L capital O capital R capital D. At least I don't think it is. Hold on a second. Let me let me let me see. Well, no, it's it's L O R D. It's Psalm sixty eight eighteen. Nope, right here, H thirty fifty. Gotcha. So it's it means the the sacred name. So whenever you see this is I did not know this. I just learned this. Um, or if I if I learned it, I forgot it and I relearned it. Um, this word Yah it occurs fifty two times, and for instance, Psalm sixty eight four, sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol Him that rideth upon the heavens by His name, Yah, and rejoice before Him. So here it's actually translated Yah, as in Psalm sixty eight four. Um, but if I go to for instance, um, Isaiah 12, 2, 
In the King James, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. The, uh, the YAH is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and the uh, Yehovah. So in, in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah, uh-oh, well, I can't remember where I was. It was Isaiah 12, 2, I think. It was Yah Yehovah, Yah Yehovah. So now let me get your question. Could you briefly recap Lord versus Lord? And does it apply for most translations? If you see a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if I recall correctly, in any translation you see that, that is for the name of God, the national name of God, Jehovah, or Yah, as the case may be. But that's only about 50 times that that occurs. Uh, that now the word, interestingly enough, check this out. Um, let's just search the Old Testament, L-O-R-D. Oh, man, that's going to, that's making my computer think. Wow. The word Lord appears a whole lot of times in Scripture. 6,000 was well, 7,242 times. Sad thing is it pulls up all the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D's as well. Yeah, all of these are Jehovah's. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. Let me see. Judge. I mean, I can get this here. All right. Let me go to Exodus. Nope. 81.99, 81.99. I don't want 81.99. I got it. I got it. Right here. Elohim. Um. All of these are Elohim. I need Adonai. Let me find some, Scott. Hopefully this works. Yeah, here we go. I got a starting point at least. Genesis 15, 2. Let's go to Genesis. Y'all are seeing this in real time. We're doing some word study. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this, Eleazar of Damascus. All right, so Lord, Adonai. Uh, it, occur, it occurs 430 times in the Bible. Translated Lord, L O R D, but it's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So, for instance, Lamentations 3 36 through 37, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. Who is he that saith 
and it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not. Now here, it's obviously used of deity, but you can find, and of course we're at iron 20 minutes in, um, the word Adonai is translated Lord, but it could mean God, but it, it could just mean Mr. It could just mean a, a, a term of respect. It could mean, um, well, Elohim is also used of God. So you have Elohim, Adonai, Yah, Yehovah. Yah, Yehovah are exclusively used of Jehovah God, and that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Elohim and uh, Adonai, uh, they can be translated Lord, L-O-R-D, just regular font. So that's it. Does that answer your question? Hopefully it does. Uh, listen, my suggestion, I wish I could share the screen with this. Esword is, I think, I don't know. I bought it forever ago. I feel like I bought it two decades ago now. But I want to say it wasn't but like 20 bucks for the the full version for a laptop or a, or a desktop. Awesome, Scott Beck. And uh, you, all of these searches are at the tips of your fingers, and they have so many free resources. I don't think I have any resources on eSword that I paid for. Now, be careful because when you start to looking up these words and reading their definitions, eSword does not have the full lexicons. Like, for instance, whenever you're studying uh, about social drinking and stuff like that, you're going to look up this term Methusco or Methuo, and it's just one or two lines. You're going to look up the term adultery, and you're just going to have one or two lines. Whenever you go to Strong's uh, uh, lexicon or Joseph A. Thayer or the BDAG, which is the standard of lexicon for scholars, um, you're going to have pages of definition and usage and uh, syntax and stuff like that that, quite frankly, is hard to get through. What, what eSword is is a really good launch point, and it gives you a better understanding than simply going to a dictionary. So, But I, I suggest every Bible student who wants to up their game spend whatever it costs, 20 or 30 bucks, and incidentally, well, I can't, I, my phone's, um, incidentally, I have a, I have eSword on my phone and I have eSword on my iPad as well. And, um, the full version of eSword you can actually get on your iPad, but on your phone, you can actually get, uh, I call it a beta version. It's probably not right, but it's, it's a, like, it's like an, an a, a, a version for your phone and it is forever more powerful. I'm telling you, it's a good tool. But anyway, that's all I've got. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, Jason Goldtrap says he wants to be uh, cremated. I, I don't care what they do with my body. I just want them to. Uh... I never understood people who wanted to be cremated. Wait until you're dead. Don't get ahead of yourself. I'm going to practice 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read that in the best possible light that I can. But uh, I appreciate your comment.
and uh, hopefully you you stick around and and garner some some Bible truth and Bible knowledge, folks. Uh, Jesus claimed to be God while he was on earth. The Jews understood exactly what he was preaching. That's why he killed him. Um, let me tell you something. That's a, a, um, a very good friend of mine. He was actually well off, but he chose to be cremated because it made for, for a much cheaper funeral. Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it online, on air, I'm just like, cremation is probably the way to go as far as money. I mean, when, the, when, when, when Jesus comes back and we're all resurrected from the dead, he can take those ashes and resurrect you from those ashes. You'll be fine. Gotcha. Wait until you're dead before you get cremated. I understand that's that's good, but people, yes, you do need to wait till you're dead before you're cremated. Um, all right, folks, listen, that's all I've got here. Remember, Jesus claimed to be God, and the the biggest reason you know he claimed to be God is because if he didn't claim to be God, the Jews wouldn't have killed him. But then we have the Isaiah six, we have the John eight, and the John twelve. Folks, that's all I've got here. God bless you. This has been Tony Birth Cogitations. And you know what? We haven't read our ad. We hadn't we haven't done our ad read. I got so caught up in the show. Uh Lindsay Faye Dotson, Lindsay Faye Dotson at gmail.com. If you're a congregation, if you're a church congregation, or if you are um any institution that's planning an online event or an event where you are and you need social media graphics, you need help with uh, flyers and stuff like that. Lindsay Faye Dotson at gmail.com. She will help you and she does a good job. So there's our ad read for this. Uh, be sure and uh, consider supporting us monetarily. Uh, we would love to have you do that. You can go to uh, Substack and subscribe for $5 a month on Substack, or you can uh, just send a one time donation to uh, nearchurches at gmail.com. Uh, we do use, I mean, we, we, that it wasn't too long ago that my boom arm broke and I had to go buy another one. And I was able to do that without worrying about what it was going to, how it was going to affect my monthly budget for my work and my life because y'all had, uh, been given money and, and we were able to do that. So, um, that's just one of the things. And then of course we, we are starting an ad campaign soon. I'm doing some research trying to figure out where the best bang for a buck will be. And, uh, yeah, that's come along on that. On, on, come along with us on that trip and, um, uh, Substack near churchesgmo.com for a tip or a Patreon, and then be sure and like subscribe and share on YouTube. And then I need to do an overlay for Podbean. I need to grow my Podbean back. Um, I haven't been focusing on it, but Podbean, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and TuneIn Radio, the archives of these live streams are uploaded there. So uh, that's it, folks. God bless you. This has been Tony Birth Cogitations, and we will catch you on the flip side.